Thanks for coming back for another episode of Pelham Place. I'm Jay Pelham, and we are still in quarantine, which means I have time to catch up with people who I know but never seem to find the time to communicate with on a deeper level. This conversation is one that I've wanted to have for a very long time. Actually, I met uh, filmmaker Eric Christopher Myers when the two of us worked in broadcasting for a little satellite radio startup known as XM Satellite Radio. During that time, we got to know a little bit about each other, and that's where I first learned that he was working on a full-length feature film titled Roulette. Soon after that time, XM consolidated with Sirius, and most of us ended up looking for new gigs. But uh, Eric and I stayed in touch through social media, and now you get to hear our first long-form conversation in probably over a decade. Eric discusses how he got started in filmmaking, the process of uh, creating Roulette, and then we discuss his latest release, Butterfly Kisses, a found footage horror film with a unique twist that I think you'll enjoy. You can find Eric's films, Roulette and Butterfly Kisses, streaming for free if you have Amazon Prime, and you can follow him on all the social platforms by searching for EKM or Eric Christopher Myers. For those of you here for the first time, please be sure to subscribe on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Pelham Place is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or by visiting PelhamPlace.com. You can also interact with me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook by searching for Pelham Place Show, or you can email me directly at PelhamPlaceShow at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in. Sit back, stay safe, and enjoy this conversation with Eric Christopher Myers. What's going on? Not too much. How's it going? Long time, no see. It has been a very long time. It sure has. And you and I met in uh, at, at our job at XM, but I don't really know much about your history other than the fact that you were in the process of making roulette uh, when we met. So I let's let's just kind of go back to the basics and and tell me a little bit about you know what got you into filmmaking. So I wanted to be a filmmaker from the time I was very very young. You know I I'm from HBO Generation One, so uh, I spent my childhood planted in front of the TV, and horror movies were really what spoke to me the most. But um, I I grew up wanting to make films and I was always part of uh, the theater program throughout school. I was always in school plays and doing things of that sort. Not so much because I ever wanted to be an actor, but rather that um, I knew I wanted to be a director someday. And I, I, I figured I would do well to understand the process that one has to um, go through in order to find a character, to find emotional strata. And uh, if I understood that for myself, I'd hopefully be able to help other people get there as well. And so when I was in high school, um, I fell in with some other kids who were making really, really terrible gangster movies on VHS camcorders. And um, they were awful, but, but we were having a blast. And um, that really cemented for me that this is something that, that I felt very passionate about, that I'd ultimately want to go to school for, that I needed to do more than just 
dabble with screenplays I needed to really, you know, get myself into a classroom, but also um, do whatever I could to make contacts in Baltimore. We had you know, John Waters making films, Barry Levinson making films, um, a lot of nearby talent, Homicide, and then, you know, you've got The Wire and all these incredible things that were sort of happening under the radar in a lot of ways in the Baltimore area. You had this whole film community that, you know, because it was more on the independent side or um, for cable television, didn't get the same sort of mainstream exposure during that day and age. Um, and of course, now we look back at all of these things as modern classics. But I spent a lot of time after high school um, running the lights for various theaters on Charles Street um, for, for their plays, or I was doing set painting or whatever I could do to get somehow involved with theatrical productions or, you know, film productions if and when they were taking place and spending my evenings pouring over the, the, the works of Paul Schrader and all of these genius screenwriters and trying to copy for myself the way, you know, the way that screenplays were written and trying to really read up on and study film grammar and language. And ultimately I went to, to college for it. And, and when I graduated, I began working for XM radio and thinking to myself, okay, so, I got a good job. I am able to pay my bills right now. I'm just sort of getting started in life. Um, but so are my peers with whom I just graduated. And we all have sort of spent the past few years asking ourselves and one another, what do I do next? Um, once I graduate from college and I've got that, that diploma, that certificate, that degree, do I move to New York or LA? And then I'm fighting with all these other recent graduates to get a job bringing somebody their, their coffee on the set of the new Transformers movie? Um, or do I try to find an alternative way to get into the scene? And this is my whole long-winded way of saying that marinating in a culture such as Baltimore, where you had John Waters and Barry Levinson and um, shows like The Wire that were happening, it really brought an appreciation for independent arts. And the fact that any filmmaker, any musician, any author, you don't need to go to a specific metropolitan area and network in the ways that we used to have to. Films can be made anywhere. Uh, you know, music can be recorded anywhere. Uh, the things that come preloaded on your MacBook from Best Buy, the, the, the audio recording software, the video editing software, if Alfred Hitchcock had had that stuff, um, you know, we'd be in the year 7,000 by now. I realized I didn't need to move to LA or to go to any of these faraway places. I could do things on my own terms. I'd be able to shoot a movie and try to tour the film festival circuit, build a buzz for myself. Um, say, if this is what I can do for $5, imagine what I could do for $6. And that you can sell a movie to these upstart, um, at then upstart labels, distributors like, you know, Lionsgate, people we consider majors now or mini majors mm -hmm. uh, who then were releasing direct to video shot on camcorder sort of films like what I was doing. Um, you could find someone to release these things and there are these new things called YouTube and, you know, the internet is really opening all these doors for filmmakers that didn't exist even five years beforehand. So uh, the short 
uh, answer to your, your question after all of that is um, I realized I needed to do something. I needed to do it on my own terms. I needed to find other like-minded artists, actors, cinematographers, whoever they were, and say, um, no one's going to get paid. Uh, we might never see a dime on this. However, at the end of the day, you're going to walk away with a credit on a feature film where you were the cinematographer, you were the, the set designer, you know, something that actually might translate to more work and more opportunities. And so that's what I did. Absolutely. So that brings up a really good question because I'm, I'm always used to hearing the, what comes first, the lyrics or the music question when it comes to songwriting. I mean, obviously a movie, a script has to be written before you can go out and start filming a, a movie. But is there, is there something that, that has to happen before that script? Are, are you thinking more in summary terms before you start writing a full screenplay? I think that it, it really depends on how much money you have. I mean, that's really what, what any sort of art comes down to at the end of the day. Uh, you know, the more money you have, the more possibilities you have. So if you're, you know, an exec working for Disney trying to plot the next Star Wars trilogy, um, you know, cost is not a factor. And it's essentially as far as the imagination can go. When you are shooting weekends and overnights um, and packing your own lunch and trying to, you know, make sure your gas tank is full and then go to work and not screw up because you're exhausted from shooting all day or whatever it is you did, it, you suddenly start making, if you're smart about it, you're, you're making lists in advance. Okay. I know somebody that owns a restaurant. Um, I'm sure that if I shot them a commercial, they would let me film in their restaurant. I know a person that's got a, a, you know, a junker car that maybe I can buy for a couple hundred dollars and we can blow it up and make that an elaborate set piece. You start making lists of people, places, things, all the nouns and saying, what would I realistically be able to get? And once you compile that list, you sort of write a story that encompasses as many things as possible. Because at the end of the day, if you are trying to make an independent film and you don't have movie star names on the poster, you have to find other ways to get the viewer's attention. And um, the worst thing that you can do is say, okay, I have no money, so I'm just going to shoot a 90-minute story with people sitting in a room or something like that. No one's going to care and no one's going to want to watch it. You have to find ways to add production value so that people will watch it. And at least that's the way that I work. Um, the story follows the sort of availability of items. Gotcha. Gotcha. The, so I have to admit, I, I have not seen Roulette. Um, that's probably um, a good thing right now because it's it's really depressing and we all need we all need smiles right now. I had the privilege of seeing pieces of it as you were were working pre-production and it was I know for a fact that some of the stuff that I saw was beautiful um however when it was released was right around the same time I was going through my divorce and that's exactly why um I just couldn't bring myself to watch something that I knew was probably going to impact me on the sadness level, whether that, you know, 
compared to needing something that was going to make me smile. Um, I completely get that. I completely so, and, and I, I just never, I never got back around to, to checking it out. Um, is it available on Amazon? Yeah. Um, roulette's available on Amazon. It's also available on physical media, but who knows if physical media is going to be around much longer, all things considered. Um, it, it is, it's interesting because when you work on an independent film, um, it can take a couple of years and that, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to take a couple of years to film it. Um, but by the time you've written it, you've cast it and then you're shooting it during the time you have available, then you edit it and then you do all the sound work and you do all the, the, the effects if that's what you need. And then you're trying to go to film festivals and get it around and then you ink a deal with the distributor and then it's nine months from there. You live with the film for a very long time. And at least for myself, nothing makes me happier than when I have, you know, seen my film officially released and can go, great, now I never need to watch it again. Because I've watched <laughs> it so many times over the past four years through working on it. And I had not watched Roulette un, you know, since right before I started shooting the follow-up, Butterfly Kisses, and that was 2015. So when just recently I was like, you know, it's been five years, and that was such a gigantic chunk of my life. I, I'd be interested in go back and revisiting it and also, you know, just sort of looking at where my artistic and maybe emotional headspace was at that point in my life. And it was depressing. It was very, very depressing to watch because it's, it's a depressing movie. Um, and that's, that, that's not taking anything away from it. If you're into films about social issues, like, uh, you know, the effects of religion on families, abortion, um, suicide, alcoholism, disease, have at it, man. This is a, this is a smorgasbord for you. Um, but if you like to um, not end your day feeling like you need to drink an entire handle of whiskey, it might not be the film for you. Um, but I went back and I revisited. I was just like, wow, you know, that, that I, I think I made a very impressive first film considering I had no money. But man, this is a this is a tough movie to watch. Absolutely. So that's that's I, really cool. I being able to to go back and and review something that you created um, years later after, you know, obviously your filmmaking career has progressed and you've, you've, I'm sure learned things about filmmaking and the industry and, and what people want out of, out of a movie um, to go back and look at that. And then there's to be able to, uh, you know, I, I guess there's probably a level of, of, critique that that would go into that as well some self-critiquing um so yeah that's that's really cool that you could do that i, I don't know that i would want to <laughs> to do uh i i yeah i don't know that i ever have listened to any of the uh anything that i've ever created years and years ago decades ago uh, well number one you should it's an interesting it's a very interesting exercise particularly if you are in a transition point and you're um you know either starting new endeavors or you're you know pondering what to do next and mm -hmm. 
you know, that was, that was kind of why I revisited roulette right before I started butterfly kisses. And now I'm trying to sort of stay away from butterfly kisses a little bit as I, you know, plan the next thing. And, you know, there's, there's such a thing as cringing at your work because you wished you'd had an extra day to work on that element of it, or you wished you'd had a a few more dollars to, to do a better job with whatever it is. Um, it's always going to come down to money, as I said before. Um, but you know, there's also when you work on a project that, that takes several years, I mean, that, that is a chunk of your life. That's a big chunk of your life, um, during which many things happen and many things change. And that very much influences and is informed by, um, the art, the art can reflect life and vice versa. And I feel that once you have sort of crossed over um, and, and, and gotten past that particular chapter, it's very wise to put it behind you, put it in the rear view, um, and try to approach whatever you're going to do next as clean as possible so that you're not repeating yourself. And, you know, that's a danger when you see someone making the same movie over and over again or, or what have you. And I, I can say that having seen my films played in movie theaters on big giant screens many, many times in front of lots of people. Um, you, you have to grow thick skin immediately. You have sure. to, because there is no feeling um, of nakedness so much as seeing your created, uh, you know, your work of art up on this giant screen for everyone to see all of the imperfections um, or to have a chance to comment on positively or negatively on whatever emotional or, um, you know, ideological thing you're trying to express. It's, it's a, it's very much like standing there naked in front of a room full of people and saying, well, this is, this is what I got. What do you think of it? Let's have a conversation. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't cringe so much when I see my work from that perspective, but definitely, you know, it, 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 it definitely comes back to how can I be, do a better job the next time, which we should all be trying to strive for anyway. Absolutely. Um, Butterfly Kisses came out in 2018. Yes. Halloween 2018. And you spent a good year prior to that release just at the festivals, right? Yes, sir. That was a, that was about a solid year and it was going all over the country and the film also played abroad. I wasn't able to make it overseas for anything, but yeah, a solid year. And, um, but it was an exciting year. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so, (laughs) so I've, I've, I actually watched Butterfly Kisses twice. Uh, the first time, my son is uh, claims to to be into horror movies. Um, however, he he definitely has a short attention span. Um, so we sat down one night, him and I, and and went to watch Butterfly Kisses, and uh, he he couldn't make it through just because he couldn't he. He didn't want to wait for the payoff. Sure, right. Um, for me, I was I was in it. I I I loved the story. I loved the fact of what I knew going into it about this local legend. Um, everything about this movie made me want to watch it because I love those types of stories. Um, 
the experience of watching it was very cool for me because when I, I you know, I, and I know, I know you have to talk about this in every interview you do for this movie, but I remember when Blair Witch came out and that whole concept, that whole found footage concept was so intriguing um, because it, it, it puts in the, the viewer's mind that thought of, is this real? Is this really existing footage that someone found? Um, and it's really, it's, it's hard to not think that. And I can tell you, uh, until reading, I didn't realize that the Peeping Tom legend was not a real Maryland legend. Um, I, from, from all of the work up to the film that you did and watching the film. And then even after the fact, I just kind of set it aside and took it for what it was worth and never really went any further to research peeping Tom. It wasn't until recently that I was reading a, an interview that you did online with someone where you actually stated that that was a legend that you wrote to go along with that one tunnel in Ellicott city. Um, and I thought that was really cool because it was finally, I knew, okay, this, this isn't, this wasn't real. This was a complete story for the film. And I love that aspect of it because there are obviously some films out there that you know, right away that this is not, this, this footage is not real. This is completely bullshit just for you know the sake of making a movie um so i you know i think you did such a great job on you know not only making the movie but creating the story around the movie um and then taking that to the next level when it's presented as a documentary about the guy that's making the movie of the found footage. Is that right? It's <laughs> probably a very succinct explanation for, uh, for a very convoluted narrative. Yes. That, it, it, it's, it's crazy because, you know, I, I remember when I was pitching the story to a number of the people that I would ultimately end up working with on it. Um, I was saying, okay, all right. So, before you say anything, just promise me you're going to let me finish. Just hold on, okay? All right. Found footage. And I see their eyes start to roll right away. And I go, no, 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 no. Hang on. Stay with me here. Found footage. Never tells us who found the footage. Let's make a documentary about somebody that says, I have found the real-life Blair Witch Project. And you know, the world was taken by surprise and many of them were hoodwinked for five minutes back in 1999 when Ed Sanchez and Dan Myrick released that film. Um, and a lot of people had never seen anything like that before. And of course, when something is popular, what happens? You see the cavalcade of schlock that follows just trying to sort of um, you know, recycle that template over and over again. So found footage now is just another subgenre of horror with, 
its own set of tropes and rules, and we can sort of anticipate what's going to happen going in. And being that I'm somebody who really loves to to you know get into the nuts and bolts of storytelling, and I've done quite a bit of critical writing um, for various websites and publications about film and film genre. Um, I thought, wouldn't it be really fun to say, okay, I'm going to make my own Blair Witch Project, and it's going to be filled with all the things that you're going to expect it to have. Student filmmakers, local legend, blah, 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 you know, all the beats, and you're expecting them. Hopefully, it'll still be an interesting concept, whatever it's going to be, that which ultimately became, you know, Blinkman, Peeping Tom, whatever you want to call him. Um, but that to me, the found footage was less interesting than saying, now we make a documentary populated with nothing but real people playing themselves. One lead actor who was an actor who, you know, we're following his journey as he has this box of footage that he has discovered a la Blair Witch Project. And he's going around and trying to, you know, essentially get himself a multi-million dollar Hollywood deal from it. You know, how do I become the next Eduardo Sanchez and Daniel Myrick and have this playing at AMC or wherever? Um, where do I cash in? Because get it, this isn't just a movie, everybody. This is it for real. I got the real thing. This is worth, this is priceless. Um, would we in, you know, the latter half of, you know, the 2010s, ever, ever, ever in a million years believe a claim like that. Not only because we had been hoodwinked, um, you know, in fun with a horror movie 20 years earlier, but we now are savvy enough to realize that, you know, that, that most trusted of genres, the documentary, we can't trust documentaries. We can't trust so-called reality TV. We can't, we can't trust a lot of things that we see that, are, are fluid and malleable. It's how you edit something together and tell whatever story you're trying to tell um, that, that lends it its, you know, alleged truth uh, without getting on a soapbox. Everybody's talking about pandemic right now, um, you know, and uh, the vast majority of the world is saying that that's all bogus, but there are people who believe it. Look, there are people, official experts talking and, you know, saying facts and numbers and things like that. It must be true. Um, the, the adage that the camera never lies, that's not the case. So I thought it would be a lot of fun to make a fake documentary, to first make a fake found footage movie and then make a fake documentary wrapped around it where this guy is going around to paranormal experts um, you know, folklore authors to, you know, um, just about every expert in town and anyone who might be able to get him some press, some buzz, some publicity. And he's showing them this found footage and nobody believes it for all the reasons we would not believe it. But at the same time, would it be kind of fun to say, hey, 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 look, we're not trying to do what the Blair Witch guys did. You know, they told you that this found footage was real. We're saying, no, this found footage is fake, but we got all these real people in a fake documentary telling you that. 
see if I could see if I could approach the same sort of thing from a different direction. And um, with some people, it worked. Other people saw through it right away. But if I can at least create the illusion of reality and you can transport yourself there for 90 minutes, cool. Well, I, the concept definitely worked for me. Um, and it, while you were talking about the, the act of trying to make people believe that the footage is real, one scene comes to mind and it's the, I forget the name of the group, but I, it's like a paranormal group or a ghost hunting group. Inspired that, Ghost uh, Tracking. The lovely men and women of Inspired Ghost Tracking. Is that a real group here in Maryland? That is absolutely a real group here in Maryland. Wow. That was we, such a fun scene to watch. Um, we see them in a VFW in Glen Burnie, Maryland. And that was all completely real. Like we came and we crashed their meeting. And um, well, I mean, we crashed it in so far as... I wanted, you know, again, the, the author to be a real author on folklore. And I, I wanted, you know, the radio station to be a real radio station. And so we have interviews at DC 101. And, you know, we've got all these people being themselves. And I wanted a real group of paranormal investigators. This actor and say, my name is Gavin York. Um, I have discovered real life paranormal footage. I want you to review it, endorse it and stand behind me at a press conference or whatever. He just mm. wants to use them and cash in on them. And I explained to the head of this organization multiple times via email. Um, it's a fake movie, but it's a fake movie with real people playing themselves but there, but this isn't a real documentary, but we're pretending it's a real documentary. And with some people, they got it instinctively. Other people, their you know heads were sort of spinning and they didn't know what the hell I was doing. But at the end of the day, um, this, this young lady, uh, Margaret Ehrlich, she was fantastic. She invited us out. I had to get up in front of her people for two hours, longer than we even shot. Two hours I had to get up there and essentially answer all of their questions um, alleviate any concerns that I was trying to set them up to look like lunatics. Cause I mean, they're, you know, easy targets. They believe in sure. ghosts. That was, you know, I didn't want them to think that was the case at all. And it, it was two hours of talking. And, um, by the time we had shot and left for the night, I still don't think that they truly knew what we were doing until they saw the finished film. And now they love it. Now they think it's fantastic. But at the time, I think they were kind of suspicious when we left. But they were wonderful. They were so wonderful. And um, that's really that's interesting. Cool. It, it it gives such a genuine aspect to the film, knowing that that's a real group and and the challenge that you had to go through to even get them to participate in that. Um, that just adds so much more to it for me because it it it, it was such an awkward moment in the film that I couldn't and awkward in a good way that I couldn't sure. fathom that scene being rehearsed, you know, or written in any way. It, it, it just felt genuine. Yeah, there were, there was a screenplay, um, but I felt that 
you know, inside the found footage part, the stereotypical Blair Witch stuff, I wanted to cast actors and I still wanted them to be fresh faces. I tried to pull more from theater than from film. Um, but I felt like if that felt at times staged or like they were actors acting, that was okay. That because the entire argument, the thrust of the documentary wrapped around it is, is this real or is this a hoax? And here are the reasons why we believe it might be real. And here are the reasons why we believe it might be hoaxed. So if they felt like actors at the time, that was okay. But the documentary had to be as close to 100% convincing and believable as possible. And so I'd written a script and... I'm realizing for the first time that while I have Seth Kallick, who is playing the protagonist or the anti-hero, Gavin, whom we are following with our documentary cameras, um, everybody else has to be real. And the blessing to that is they bring their own experience and their own um, verisimilitude. We know that this person is real. We know that DC 101 is a real place. We know that the director of the Blair Witch Project is really the director of the Blair Witch Project when he pops up for a cameo. Um, but the, the other side of that is that people who have never acted before, that doesn't mean that you turn a camera on and they can just play themselves. It's not as simple as just, I'm just going to play myself. They, they don't necessarily have that experience. They don't know how to perform, how to emote, remember lines. And so what I tried to do was do three takes of every scene. And the first take was, give me what's on the book. Let's, let's, I want to hit these dialogue marks. The second take would be, feel free to go a little bit off book, put it in your own character's language or in your language a little bit more, but hit all those same marks. And then the third take would be, just go, just run with it. And so what you'd end up seeing in the assembly, the final film, is you'd see a little bit of each of those, you know, various takes that we did. And with people like the ghost hunters, that was 100% off book at a certain point. You know, they, they just started going with it, bringing their own experience as paranormal investigators, their own unwillingness to be made fun of and exploited by a probable huckster. They bring that reality to the moment. And it's amazing. It's great. It's, and that is, you know, an interesting thing about the film that a lot of people don't talk about when they talk about it. They, they refer to it as being a found footage movie. And I guess it is, you know, it, it hits all of the markers for what we would consider a found footage movie. But then you, you have this whole other element to it, which is it's, it's satire. It's in a way sort of deconstructing found footage movies and also deconstructing documentaries in general. Um, and so that really works for some people, some, but, but people who love horror can be a little bit turned off by that other stuff, like maybe your son. Uh, but then people who are, have no use for horror get turned on by, you know, all of that self-reflexive commentary. So, um, it can, it can make it a hard film to describe sometimes. Well, and I think to put it in perspective for people who, who haven't watched the film and without giving anything away, um, so this is the film's put together in I mean basically three distinct sections. Um, the first section is it really focuses on Gavin, 
And then at some point, uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to reference the outside of the hotel scene as the beginning of the next section for me. And that's where, that's where you really start to see uh, the film crew. Right. And that was that the actual, was that your actual film crew or were those actors playing a film crew? That was the real film crew. And um, it's, I guess it's fortunate that I had had all those years of theater experience I referenced before because um, I didn't want to be in this film as myself. I really didn't want to. Um, I wrote the script in something like seven or eight days. It was a real fast write. And the entire time that I was working on it, I was thinking to myself, I don't want to be in this movie, but I feel like the plot's starting to go in that direction. You know, we've sort of got the, the student filmmakers who made their Blair Witch Project, and now we've got the next Ring Outward, which is a documentary that my film crew is making about Gavin trying to take that found footage and capitalize on it. And then we come out to that third layer, which is the film crew essentially watched their documentary subject go off the deep end and they're trying to figure out, do we keep shooting this thing? Do we abandon it? Just as tantalizing clues are coming to them that perhaps entices them to keep filming. So I'm writing it the whole time going, God, I don't, I don't want to put myself in this, but that's the way the story is starting to go. It makes total sense. I'm also filling it with all of these real people as themselves. How much more meta could I get then sort of dropping the veil, who's shooting this the whole time, have the sound guy walk out with his boom mic and, you know, show who my first assistant director is, have me come out and be a pretentious filmmaker from behind the camera. It, it, it made total sense. Everybody was game for it. I will never do that again, though. That was, that was just, <laughs> that was stressful trying to direct and, and act at the same time. And Well, I, I think that's definitely what makes the film unique and, and, it adds so much to the storyline. Um, and, you know, like I said, again, for me, that was part of the build, you know, and, and getting to, to the big payoff. And, uh, you know, I don't think I've ever seen any other movie that, that builds in that way. And so I, I think it was really well done, man. I take that as a compliment. It's, I mean, again, if you're going to work on something for a couple of years, you want to try to, you know, do something that's worthy of that, that time and say, I'm going to do something a little bit different. You know, it just, just do something a little bit different that people might appreciate. And you got to feed your soul while you're doing it. You've got to be entertaining yourself in the process. And if there's one truly cool thing that has come out of um, putting myself and the film crew in the movie, it's the fact that in all of the film screenings that I did through 2018 uh, at all of these festivals all over the place. One of the things I was very adamant about was I didn't want to cut a movie trailer. I didn't want to show, I didn't want to cut a preview like is typical for most releases until I absolutely had to. I knew that once we put ink on a, on a distribution deal, they were going to need a, a promotion. Um, and that I would promote the film. But I knew that no matter what I cut, it was going to sort of, you know, it was going to give you the impression that you knew what you were going to be watching, 
how do you find that balance? You know, do, is this a horror movie? Is this a satire? What is this exactly? It's hard to, you know, sort of encompass all of that when doing a two minute preview. So for me, the exciting thing was going to these conventions and these festivals. They had no preview whatsoever, no plot synopsis in the program, just this very ambiguous title. Um, people walked in, sat down, the film started playing. Nobody knew what the hell they were watching. In a lot of cases, you know, I'd see phones come out and I'm, I'm, I'm looking, I'm seeing that they're going on the internet movie database. They're looking up these people who are in the flick and seeing that they're real people and showing the phones to one another. And I'm sort of crouching in the back row being like, this is cool. This is very, very cool. <laughs> and when the film is over and it's time for me to come down and do my Q&A, there were all of these instances where, you know, the whoever the MC was would say, okay, we got the director and I'd come down the stairs and people are turning. And I would hear people say out loud, oh my God, he was in the movie. <laughs> Not so much because I was any sort of celebrity, but because people are, are looking at me and going, wait, okay, wait, how much of this is real? What, did, what the hell did I just watch? Right. And to me, that was, that was very, very, very neat. That's cool. That is really cool. Are you working on anything now? I am actually, so I, I was considering my options right before coronavirus happened. You know, I had like three projects. I'm going, this is the one for no money. This one for a little bit of money. This is the one where I have money. And, um, then coronavirus happened and a lot of things got shut down which is just making me all the more inspired right now to say, okay, we have movie theater chains that are going bankrupt. We have studios that are not creating content for the first time in film history. You know, uh, it's, it's a crazy, crazy time. And when the lights turn back on in the world and we all start scrambling back to our, to our preferred normal, this is the time where independent artists, and, and I'm speaking to anybody that might possibly be listening or hearing right now, if you write, if you sing, if you act, if you dance, whatever you do, this is the time because people are starving for things that inspire them. They're starving for things that will feed their soul and distract them from uncertainty and fear and anger and, and combativeness over how we're all supposed to be living right now. Artists are the medicine that we are all taking right now. And when the world comes back together, artists need to scramble like cockroaches because we don't need hundreds of millions of dollars to make movies or tell stories or whatever else. We're used to doing it with five bucks. So let's put our five bucks together and do something special. And I think I know what I want to do when this is all over. And I'm very excited about it. I can't wait for it. And, and you're absolutely right. This is, you know, this time right now is people are learning how to make the most with nothing. Um, and I really think that that's going to be, uh, it, it's, it's going to pay off big when all of this is over. Um, I, I, I hate to think that it might even put some other businesses out of business um, in a sense, because people that whole DIY movement, uh, I think, is going to grow uh, to to levels that we didn't we could never conceive. 
Um, I really think that that's going to be a, a big deal once things start opening up again. Um, with that said, what do you, how do you feel about the, the movie industry as an experience coming back up? And when I ask that, when I say that, I mean, uh, what do you, what do you feel the movie seeing experience will be going to a theater, sitting down in a theater full of people and watching a movie? Do you see that coming back uh, at the same level that it was before this happened? I, I think that yes and no. Um, I think people are going to be so hungry to pick up where they left off in just about every aspect of their lives. And for people who love concerts, for yep. people who love going to movies, you know, for people who love doing those social experiences, um, we all want that. However, I think that there are going to be people who run blindly into it, hopefully not too soon. I hope not too soon. Um, then there are also going to be people who are perhaps dealing with their own PTSD over because we're all dealing with so much anxiety right now that I think that even the hungriest person is going to sort of wait and see how the previous diners, you know, digested their food before going out and, and ordering it for themselves. Um, it's, I, it's hard to say because I, I feel like the industry has become for film specifically something where films cost so many I mean, multiple hundreds of millions of dollars to turn out the new Marvel film or the new Star Wars film. And we've really turned into a culture of, um, you know, sort of these, these tentpole films and franchises uh, where we're expecting one every weekend um, and because that's what we're getting. And a film has to, you know, essentially make its money in the first two weeks because it's going to be out on Blu-ray in a month. Um, there was a time uh, where, you know, a film would play in a theater for a year and it might be three years before it was on VHS or HBO or what have you. Uh, now, the turnaround is such that if you missed it in the theater this week, eh, it's going to be on Blu-ray next week or streaming. Um, but, you know, with all of the hits that the economy has taken and, you know, Hollywood essentially shutting down, the question is going to be, you know, are they going to want to gamble on some of these, you know, everybody wants to build the next Marvel, um, you know, serialized storytelling, we're putting out product three times a year and people keep coming back for it. And a lot of these attempts fail dramatically and cost hundreds of millions of dollars in the process. It's going to be interesting to see whether the studios um, become perhaps less adventurous, more cautious. Um, or whether they decide they're going to feed the, the demand for consumable media. Uh, or it's going to be really interesting to see if we have what happened in the 1970s happen again, which was, you know, when the, when the, the studio systems essentially were being bought up by, you know, soft drink conglomerates and whatnot. And all of the, you know, three piece suit directors were kind of shown the door and you had these college kids like, Coppola and Scorsese and, and Lucas and Milius and De Palma, all these, these influential filmmakers who came in, essentially took studio money, made independent films, and that's where you get Jaws and The Exorcist and Star Wars and Apocalypse Now. And that changed 
the industry forever. It would be wonderful to see even a little bit of that happen again here and now. Absolutely. The people who don't need all of that money but have big ideas. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, you know, I think about, you know, mid-March, the end of March, when we first started hearing about all of the movies that either uh, were going to push, you know, push release, release dates to the fall or even to next year, or we're just going to go straight to video on demand. But then at the same time, you're also hearing that production is stopping on everything that was in production. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, we've got, we've got a bunch of movies that were already in the pipeline that are, we're going to see eventually. You've got probably another bunch of movies that were in post-production or just beginning post-production that could probably still be completed during this, this quarantine time and set for a release date sometime down the road. But then you've got potentially two or three months of nothing getting produced, nothing getting created, you know, on a, on a studio backlot somewhere. You know, there's not, there's no work being done right now for that next group of movies that should be released. Um, what do you, what do you think we'll see once we get to that point? It's hard to say, say, say what the experience of going and seeing a movie theater is going to be like, um, you know, which will be probably half euphoria and half terror. Um, what is enough to lure you out to a place that you might feel very cautious or, or uncertain about um, going to and sharing space with lots of people? What's it going to take to lure you out? And so when, uh, you know, a, a high profile film like the new Batman movie shuts down mid-production, that's crazy. But then when you've got these other major films, like the next Wonder Woman film and, and, you know, Black Widow and the next Bond that was supposed to come out, you know, already, it's, you know, it's a big deal that we're hearing, oh, it's being pushed back to December or maybe 2021 that it'll be released. They're in the can, they're ready to go, but we don't have a way to deliver them. And you know, okay, cool. So we'll all be able to see the next Bond film at the end of the year if all goes well. But who's going to have money to go see the new Bond film? And it, it, yeah. it's a whole other issue that's happened with movie theater chains where, you know, the cost to see a film, even in standard, non-IMAX, non-real-D, ticket prices are ridiculous. Um, if you want to get anything from the concession stand, you're talking... 30 bucks a person, you know, if not more than that, it's, it's obscene the amount of money it costs to go see a film when, as I said, you can just wait a little bit longer and pick up that 4k ultra, you know, HD disc for, uh, you know, half of what you spent at the movie theater that night. Um, I don't know who's going to have the money for that. And, you know, I'm, I'm a died in wool star Wars fan who did not much care for the most recent Star Wars film at all. I did nonetheless go back to see it um, three times because I was going through three different sets of people who all wanted to see it with me. Very cool. Um, 
am I going to have the money to go see a Star Wars movie once, let alone three times? That's, that's the question, you know? You have to sort of pick and choose then instead of let's just go see a movie this weekend. You know, we need to buy new shoes. We need to buy groceries. Um, the yeah. mortgage didn't get paid for a while there. Other priorities. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I definitely think that, um, you know, it's going to change. It, it, you know, people's behavior is going to change um, when it comes to entertainment choices in general. Um, you know, for me personally, there were some movies that I was looking forward to that, I wanted to see in the theater. I wanted to be with the big group of people in a dark theater for those movies. Um, you know, A Quiet Place 2, uh, The Invisible Man. Right. I can't imagine watching those movies in my home. It's something I like just a don't quiet feel place that's designed for a communal environment. Exactly. You want to see that film, right? Exactly. You know, and so The Invisible Man went to video on demand, video on demand and I just haven't brought myself to watch it yet because one, I don't want to pay the $20 rental f rental fee. <laughs> um, I, I just can't see renting a movie for 20 bucks. Um, at the same time, I'm hoping that at some point it will make its way back to a theater. Even if I have to go to, you know, what's, what's referred to as the dollar uh, theater to see it, I'd rather see it in that, that environment. Yeah. I mean, pre pandemic, we were already looking at the death of the, you know, the, the movie theater chain. Um, yep. you know, so, so, so many less people, so many fewer people have been going to see, you know, non tentpole films. That's why everything that comes out as a tentpole film. Everything is like a sure thing release. Whereas you see a lot of independent films, um, are just going straight streaming because that's where the money for that film will be made anyway. But the cost involved with, um, you know, all the nuts and bolts that are involved with a film going from a studio finished to being able to play in movie theaters all over the world. It's, it's such a gigantic step that really doesn't bear that much fruit theatrical releases have almost become more like commercials for the home video version. And now home video is going away and it's going straight to streaming. So you, when you've got somebody like Disney creating their own platform for streaming, right. um, you know, CBS is starting to do that as well. And it, it's suddenly you, you get those, the hair standing up on the back of your neck a little bit where you're going, I'm watching the gradual phasing out of movie theaters because movie theaters won't be necessary anymore. I've got, I've got a 4K TV right behind me. I've got a surround sound stereo system. Um, I don't technically need to go to a movie theater to get the audio and visual that, that sort of makes up what a theatrical experience is. And some people might care about sitting in the theater and having that communal atmosphere. A lot of people are just like, let me just watch the movie. Because I'm Absolutely. just scrolling through Twitter the whole time anyway. So, you know, I might as well. Yep. Yep. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, so I, I have a funny question for you because this is something that I was thinking about after you and I started scheduling this conversation. Um, when it comes to, when it comes to horror films, uh, do you, 
what would, in your opinion, what would you, what would you say is the most overused scare tactic? Jump scares, totally jump scares. Yeah. But, but any, any certain type of scene that would get that effect from a, a viewer. I mean, you know, slashers kind of really cultivated the, the, the build up to the big jump. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that, you know, we saw it perfected to an art form in the 80s with, you know, Friday the 13th in particular uh, made use of that. And now every horror film has to have, you know, jump scares. And we, we see them coming. We sense them coming. And yep. we are usually not affected by them because, you know, it's a trope. We can identify when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen. This is the part where we think it's going to happen and then it doesn't happen. And then we're supposed to let our, you know, the air out of our lungs. And then it really does happen and we all jump three feet. Um, a lot of times it doesn't work, which is exactly why I put one in butterfly kisses mm-hmm. to see if it would work. And every screening, people scream. I don't, I, I'm just like, wow. I mean, on the one hand, that's really, really cool that it works. I did that. That's awesome. And on the other hand, oh man, I got to reach higher for the next film, you know, (laughs) (laughs) scares. come on. So I'll tell you the reason I asked that question is because even in, even in TV shows that we watch, not necessarily horror shows, just dramatic TV shows, it seems like there's this trend of a particular scene and you see it coming every time where someone walks into the middle of a street and then boom, they're hit by a car. And it's, you know what? It's so funny because I laugh every time I see it because I know it's coming, but it makes me jump every time. Like I, I'm just like, I can't watch that. And, uh, I, 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 I don't know what it is about that scene for that particular type of scene for me that even though I see it coming, it still gets me. Probably because it's real and it's plausible. Um, Mm -hmm. You you and I have both worked in um, radio traffic long enough in our past that um, (laughs) it report on people getting hit by cars (laughs) all the time. You know that stuff is real, and that's probably Absolutely. more effective than the boogeyman jumping out from under a bed or something. Uh, yeah, there's there's a lot to be said for even when we know it's coming, if we realize that it's something that could happen to us or to a loved one. Um, that's that that that's what gives it its power and its impact. No pun intended. So now, yeah, my next yeah. film, I need to have you do a cameo, and I'm going to have you hit by a car. Awesome. Are you, I'm in. If you're game, we're going to put this in writing or in verbal writing right now i'm in let's do it done i'm shaking your hand (laughs) (laughs) perfect all right man so how do uh how do people find you how do people find butterfly kisses how do they how do they keep in touch uh let's get all the plugs in uh roulette my first film and butterfly kisses my second film are both available streaming for free if you have amazon prime um, it's also on Vudu, uh, Hulu, all the things that end with the ooh sound. Um, or you can buy the Blu-ray or the DVDs for either one through Amazon, Best Buy, Barnes & Noble, all those places. Uh, I also write film criticism for Any Cool News, so you can find me there. Uh, I write under the handle EKM, 
Those are my initials for Eric Christopher Myers. That's also how you'd find me on Twitter or on Facebook, EKM or EK Myers. Awesome. Man, I am so happy that we got this uh, scheduled and we're able to chat today. It's been a long time and uh, I look forward to keeping in touch and having a beer when all this, uh, when life gets back to normal. The beer is definitely going to happen. And if you ever want to have me back just to chat about anything, I'd love to be back again. We'll absolutely do it. Thank you, Eric. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, there it is. Be sure to follow Eric Christopher Myers, EKM, on all of the social platforms. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Be sure to email me feedback or suggestions to Show at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening and be safe.